1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Jared Johnson, ready to share some more provocative thinking for healthcare innovators and digital teams. Here on the Healthcare app, we believe that the healthcare experience has to change, and we're trying to do something about it. We can either stand back and let it take another 50 years, or we can jump in right now, and I think you know how we roll. We're not going to coast to neutral. We're hitting the gas. Come be a part of it. Each week, we talk about the topics you need to know about and act on to be part of the digital transformation movement. We share tips on shifting the way that healthcare is experienced digitally and the backstage strategies for marketing operations and digital teams to drop the silos and stay ahead of the curve. We recently passed 150 episodes in three years on the air. We're now in season five, which is our quest to answer whether it's even possible to provide the healthcare experience that consumers desire. So here's what's gonna go down today. We have the flavor of the week about getting our curiosity back, are we conditioning ourselves to only value content and ideas from people who have the exact same job as us? I'll talk about that. Then Jill McCormick from TechSpring is in the house to share some provocative thinking about solving what she refers to as digital health's passionate problems. When we use human-centered design and then tie that work to digital transformation, we start solving the problems that really need to be solved to move our businesses and healthcare forward. This episode is jam-packed, and Zane and I have a lot to share along the way. It's time to dive right in. You ready? Let's go.
0: Flavor of the week.
1: Want to drop the silos once and for all and build the healthcare of tomorrow together? Well, then it's time to get your curiosity back. Recently, I had the pleasure of joining a conversation on Clubhouse about marketing versus communications. The question was how to understand the value of each side and how to structure departments. Does marketing report to communications or vice versa? Or do they both report up somewhere else? And what value do both sides bring to the business? I enjoyed hearing many different perspectives, especially because I've held roles on both types of teams. But it also brought to mind several organizations I know where marketing and communications were constantly fighting turf wars. They continually downplayed the contributions of the other side in order to try to lift themselves up. They fought for digital real estate, always tripping over themselves to get more attention on social media, the website, and in digital marketing campaigns. When this happens, no one wins. Think about it, is it really any wonder why leadership can struggle to understand what you do? It led me to ask, why does this happen? Why is there so much competition and lack of respect between departments? And that got me thinking, have B2B trade media, conferences, content marketing, and professional education gotten so specialized and segmented that they're unintentionally contributing to our siloed mindset? In other words, do we have silos of expertise because, say, a mid-sized hospital PR manager only attends conference sessions for fellow mid-sized hospital PR professionals and follows PR thought leaders who reiterate how important PR is and why it's better than marketing? Are we conditioning ourselves to only value content and ideas from people who have the exact same job as us in the same type of organization? Last week, I talked about media blind spots. If the media you consume only interviews other people in the same role in the same types of organizations as you, you're creating blind spots. And those blind spots are keeping you from having the well-rounded perspective that you need in order to succeed. To which I ask, where has our curiosity gone and what will it take to get it back? How do we bring back our natural curiosity and our desire to understand the other parts of the business? How do we play well together to achieve the organization's vision? Can we start by acknowledging that no single department keeps the business alive on its own? One way is by exploring new yet related media sources as part of your professional education. Don't just look for blogs, podcasts, and YouTube channels that have the exact same outlook or experience as you. Try new topics that could be of interest. You work for a health IT startup? Cool. Maybe find a podcast that talks about finance reform. You do social media at a regional health system? Awesome. Try following health IT media and learn about data or cybersecurity. Each time ask yourself, what can I learn from this? Instead of finding reasons why it doesn't apply to you. Let's all work to get better at our jobs. Let's also rediscover our natural curiosity about what others do so we can better respect their contributions and lift us all up together. That's the healthcare that I want to be a part of. And that's the flavor of the Week. Hey, listeners oh, we are so pumped for this one zane and i are really really excited to have this conversation with you this week we've got jill mccormick in the house with us jill is the director of design and innovation for bay state health and their digital innovation arm tech spring a lot of you have heard about them and are aware of the work they're doing it's it's fascinating work jill welcome how are you doing today i'm
2: doing awesome thanks for having me on guys
1: so good to have you, Jill. We're hoping the, the weather's decent in your area of the country right now. The, is that Western Massachusetts?
2: Western Massachusetts, it's gorgeous. My kids are actually at the the farmer's market right now as we speak. Oh,
1: it's snowing here. It's snowing here in Detroit and we're in sweaters.
2: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's awesome. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Jill, you and I have, uh, we couldn't even put a finger on how exactly we first connected or, or got to know each other here. But the one thing that stuck out for me was there are a few words that whenever these these words are kind of in like in the same sentence or in the same area, I like my my ears perk up and I'm, I'm always like, okay, somebody who's talking digital health, innovation, human-centered design, and the applications of it. I mean, you're in the thick of it. Uh, tell us more about TechSpring itself. And one example you gave that I heard about recently was this Health Equity Innovation Lab, which is, again, another thing that just kind of blows my mind about the kind of amazing work you're doing. Tell us about that.
2: Sure, sure. So, yeah, so we're Bay State Health Digital Innovation Hub, and we started about six years ago, and we really work to solve the passionate problems of the organization and match them with compelling digital solutions in the marketplace. And so how we do that, or our business model around that is, is that we actually work both with the health system to frame the passionate problems and actively work to solve them with the health system, but we also work as a product accelerator or product development accelerator services for technical or technology solutions. I
3: like that. I like how you just use the term passionate problems. I've not heard that before. I assume it's intentional. Yes,
2: (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's intentional and really what passionate problem means is that, you know, is it aligned at the highest level of strategy for the organization? Is there momentum behind solving this challenge? Are there, you know, is the front line going to engage on solving this problem? Do, you know, consumers want to solve this problem as well? Consumers being, you know, obviously in healthcare, it's quite broad. It's consumers being patients that are prospective or you're Patients themselves, or even your staff and employees, in a competitive market where it's hard to find and retain talent. You know, thinking about employees as as also, uh, you know, consumer. That
1: part's really interesting. We we recently had a a guest on the program, Kelly Gill, who's an executive recruiter, and I think as part of the conversation, it just came up. He mentioned about how it's true. You can just throw a stone at a problem in healthcare that can be solved with digital and. You know, we kind of chuckled about it during the episode, but that's actually stuck with me about the part of like it's not a question of oh, I I just wish we had other things to solve with yeah. the digital transformation. <laughs> it's the whole thing that you just mentioned of like okay, what what does the consumer actually want here? Like, what's the thing yeah. that really does need to be solved, not just from one one stakeholder who who swears this is going to revolutionize everything. I mean, it, it can be easy for us to kind of you know recoil and just think. Hey, you know what, like like it's we're we're boiling the ocean every day, and we're just not making any progress. So so you know, I just wanted to you know give some kudos there for for the work that you're doing and truly making some progress in this area.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think sort of the idea that for around passionate problems that sort of sticks out to me is really just around will you get it to be you know so as entrepreneurs as innovators we are people who have a lot of activation energy, right? Like we can help Absolutely. with just fortitude alone you know, climb that hill, but that is maybe not the best use of your skill and resource. And so really what we try to do when we frame them up as passionate problems is move them from the edge of the table to, you know, something that somebody actually is is planning to solve this year, what's in their strategic goals, what is their aligned self-interest in solving this? so that you can tap into that as you're pushing it forward. So without the passion and the problem solving, I think Mm -hmm. that you're sort of... Because there's so many challenges to address in healthcare, there's so many fires to put out. You're going to slide right off the side of the desk. And so you have to, you have to pick the right problems to
3: solve. I like that. I like that. I like that framing. I think it's unique. I've not heard that before and I might have to use it if that's okay, Jill.
2: Please do. Uh, Please do.
3: Because I feel like digital teams, innovation teams, you name it, have such issue where they invent something, they scope something, they visualize something and they try to pass it off onto operations and it just sort of falls flat. And I think It's because we've not addressed, is this truly a passionate problem that someone on the inside, so to speak, really wants to solve?
2: Exactly. One of the challenges that we face, and this leads into your question around the CGI or the Clinton Global Initiative, is that it's really hard for health systems to work with startups. And at least it had been for us because, you know, again, being... in we're mostly self-funded, working with technology innovators who sort of pay for that product development acceleration services, we hadn't really been able to crack the nut and how to how to work with startups. And mm-hmm. one of the ways that we overcame that challenge is with the Mass E Health Institute created a sandbox program where they said, okay, where are these centers for living, like where are living labs across the state of Massachusetts that have you know, access to the people, the technology, and the process for the problems and challenges that startups want to solve. And how do you create that bridge so that they can again do their product development mm-hmm. validation work or pilots or whatever it is that they're going to do? There just wasn't like a business model or a mm-hmm. way for us to engage. And so they created the sandbox program. So that was really helpful and, and helped us think about, you know, how might we work with startups more? But why I sort of bring that up though is because we've sort of figured out You know, how to source the passionate problems from the organization, how to create sort of priority and arguably like challenges or propelling questions around them. We also have deep stills in the solution space, really thinking about what are the solutions are there in the market and sort of what is their differentiating factors and then how might they actually connect and integrate through the system? How do you manage compliance for doing crazy new things inside the organization? You know, that's a big governance and compliance and information security and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. How do you structure relationships, etc.? And so as part of that, we are expanding sort of the TechSpring brand in a way to sort of say, okay, well, where are other areas that could this kind of model could work. And so through that relationship with Mass E-Health Institute, we were introduced to my Alamada, which is Babson, which is amazing. And this amazing doctor named Claire Pierre, who is the chief medical officer for Harbor Health. I think she has seven community health centers that are like the federally qualified community health centers. And what the things that she noticed in her passionate problem that she's looking to solve is that there isn't a lot of. Funding and time investment in solving challenges for healthcare, I mean, for population health, and for community health center mm, groups. And said, so how can we leverage sort of what we've found from TechSpring and our sort of model? Babson's amazingness with entrepreneurship and Mm -hmm. startups and using the community health centers as a living lab to solve Mm -hmm. the challenges with sort of a racial and health equity lens. Mm -hmm. So we're super excited about that commitment to work with them on that. We work with Public Health Institute of Western Mass, for example, solving some challenges with them, sort of building off of that momentum of how do you convene? How do you figure out what the problems are? And how do you bring in the right technology solutions and then support their collaboration?
3: That's fantastic. Well, it sounds like you guys are up to some amazing work over there and spread out further than I thought you were across different stakeholders. That's great. And I loved your nod to more community help, especially being the Canadian on this podcast. In Canada, our health systems are much more community oriented. So when I came to the U.S., had some questions about where we're making investments. So very, very cool. So thank you again for being here, but today we really wanted to talk about sort of like where are things going in healthcare when it comes to innovation, human-centered design, what is current state um, and how they're being applied and so on and so forth.
2: Human-centered design is really just the The magic of placing the user or the consumer at the center of the change management process. And so you do this by establishing sort of a deep empathy with your consumer, your customer, your staff, whatever it is, through things like empathetic interviewing and observation. Mm -hmm. And you start to put that into, into a way of understanding it so that you are actually analyzing your clinical and business problems from your consumer's perspective. So that's Mm -hmm. a different way of looking at it, right? Typically, we solve problems from our perspective, if we're Mm -hmm. the business. And so this is actually looking at what are the problems and how might you solve them from the the patient's perspective, for example. And then what you do is you actually co-create the ideas for how to solve these problems with your consumers and involve them in the prototyping and testing of the solution. And so to me, it's sort of, an amazing way to delight and to delight your consumers and really reshape the way that your organization solves problems in general. So state of sort of how, what is the status quo? Yeah, <laughs> what's that, the status um, quo? Uh, can I give an example rather than please. answering that directly? Absolutely, so, please. <laughs> so the, stat, the status quo is really, in my mind, just this tremendous lack of empathy in general sure. in the design sure. of our healthcare system. So that's sure. pretty broad and harsh, right? Um, yes. And then, and maybe arguably one layer below that is maybe a lack of, you know, cross-silo coordination for shared sure. goals for the user. So it's really... Not really understanding what it is that we put patients through, if you right. will, um, when yeah. they engage with our system, and then and how to solve problems from that position. And so, the example I'm going to give. So, first of all, you need to know a little bit about me. I have an immediate family of seven individuals, wow. and because I happen to work in healthcare, I am Dr. McCormick. Uh-oh. I am not medically trained, I don't have any clinical <laughs> background, yeah. but because you know I'm this like director of innovation or whatever the heck I am, I'm this point person for my extended family in Austin for my friends. So I'm perceived to know something about how to navigate. They always call me, not just in for Bay State, like my immediate market, but you know, nationally I have people calling me for help. Right. <laughs> how to navigate. Do you have a social work degree? I think I do not, but I'm I'm actually thinking about that, to be honest. (laughs) Yes. But my story is for my my three-year-old daughter. So my husband and I are finally out to dinner two years. First time in two years, we've been alone together. We're going to go out to dinner and we have a a night in the hotel. And my stepdaughter calls me to tell me that my three-year-old daughter seems to have broken her thumb. So what do I do, you know, get some information. And then I immediately call without looking online or searching the web. I just like, I'm going to call, you know, my pediatrician's office and explain to her that whoever answers the phone, that my, my daughter seems to have broken their thumb and what do I need to do? And so put the phone down, get a phone call number two back from the pediatrician's office. And the nurse that's on call tells me, yep, this is not an emergency. She's not in any pain. She doesn't have any the other symptoms. Don't worry about it call in the morning to be seen by a pediatrician. So they wow me with phone call number three because it's 7.45 and I haven't even started my day. And I get a phone call from my pediatrician's office. And they're like, come on in today and have an urgent visit. And I'm sort of like, well, she's not in any pain and I'm kind of away. (laughs) Is there any way in America that I can put this off until another day? And she's like, yep, it certainly can wait until tomorrow and uh, get an appointment for Easter Sunday. So on Sunday. To so take my daughter in, and I meet with the pediatrician, and she says, Well, I don't really know what to do about a broken thumb. So wow. here's an order for an X ray. But I actually recommend that you go to urgent care that has an X, you know, like at an ortho clinic, because you'll get an X ray and a consult from your ortho person. And that would be super, super great. It would save you a trip because otherwise they would take an X ray. They'd send it back to me and then I would refer you to Orso. That's how it would work. It's too many steps. And I said, Wow, aren't you savvy? Thank you for that. So the next day, Monday, I go to the appointment and I accidentally go to the wrong facility. So I get my three year old out of the car, Oof. only mm-hmm. to get the whatever, hobble up some stairs <laughs> and uh, re- realize I'm at the wrong facility. So visit three. So I've now been to the pediatrician's office, the wrong facility. Now I'm at the right place. And they have a sign outside that says, please call before you commit. So I call and she says, you know what? We can't see your daughter here. I'm like, excuse me, what is it that you do again? And she explains what (laughs) she does. And she describes exactly what I need. They take imaging of things and you get a consult from an ortho. And I'm just like, oh, that sounds like exactly what I need. Absolutely. Are you sure you can't see me there? And she's like, hold on. So she runs and goes and talks to the doctor. She comes back and says, nope, we can't see you here. And I'm like, excuse me, what, what is it that you do here again? And she says, we, you know, she tells me exactly what they do, which is exactly what my, my daughter needs. And I said, I, I don't think I'm articulating myself correctly because I think you do exactly what I need. <laughs> right, right. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm continuing to push, you know, long, long, long story long. I end up talking to the manager. Turns out that the They have a hand specialist who's out on maternity leave. And so they can't see me there because they don't have it. And they were saying, well, why don't you go to the emergency department? And I was like, well, because I think that they're just going to take an X-ray and then they're going to send it to my pediatrician. And then I'm going to get a a consult from ortho. So like, couldn't you just take my X-ray since I'm here for my daughter instead of me going to the emergency room and waiting and going through all of that? And she's like, no, we can't do that. And so I'm like... (sighs) exacerbated like what the heck right and so I was like if it was your daughter you had a three-year-old and you're like and she's losing her mind in the back seat what would you do and she's like oh I would call this other urgent care place that that does this (laughs) okay (laughs) wow." wow and so my point here is that So then eventually, anyways, I made it to the place that I needed to be. My daughter had both the x-ray and the surgical consult, and she's getting a surgery sometime in the near future. She didn't break her thumb. She has trigger thumb. She's fine. (laughs) So, you know, I got what I needed eventually, but the part that was sort of hilarious and that I was talking about with my husband is that because of my role in the family and why people call me to navigate is because he calls it the shower ahas. He's like, what I love about you is that you have the capacity to ask the things that I would have thought I should have asked when I'm in the shower, you ask them now. Mm -hmm. And so you drove toward that. And he's like, can you imagine if I came home and said, we have to go to the emergency room because Mm -hmm. this place can't take Luna? And I would Mm -hmm. have said, you're out of your mind. And I would have read Mm -hmm. the website and said, they absolutely do this. And I would have actually not trusted him that he was in the right place. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's a long story, but it's something to just sort of talks about how it just wasn't designed for care navigation because of this silo optimization. The person who answers the phone from each of these places, they just do what they, they, what their silo tells them to do. Right. Rather than optimize around what is my true journey. I didn't, I shouldn't even have gone to the pediatrician's office. They probably should have trusted the mom from the first phone call that her daughter's thumb was out of place and sure. immediately given that sort of care of navigation
1: yeah first and foremost we did not hear a whole lot of empathy from uh, any of the any part of the healthcare system that you just encountered and that's you yeah, know that's that was the first thing that stuck out yeah not a whole lot of even uh, based on what you just said your repeated attempts to just dr- you know, have them have a morsel of empathy for for what was happening and and to make even one part of this journey easier. I think sometimes I I trip people up when I use the term digital transformation all the time, because that sounds like the gigantic big thing you're trying to boil the ocean. And what it really does come down to is single encounters with a single patient, caregiver, family member, like you are, you're just describing. And I'm trying to think now of, you know, like how how we could use human-centered design principles and digital solutions to have solved even a couple of the, the parts of that to remove some friction there, bringing some empathy to that journey. Hey, this is Scott Burgess from Healthcare 360, the fair and balanced healthcare podcast, exploring everything you wish you knew about healthcare but don't. Join us weekly in an open, transparent conversation with some of the biggest names in the healthcare business surrounding this one question and one question only. Had you known there were other options to exhaust and explore before you traveled down the traditional healthcare route, how would you weigh those options against what you think healthcare and medicine really is? For more information about Healthcare 360 and how together we can help transform lives, visit scotteburgess.com, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or
3: follow us anywhere you
1: enjoy listening.
3: See you there. What I really appreciate too, what you brought out, Jill, or the example you brought out is where when you reframed sort of what would you do if I if you were in my position or the mother, then all of a sudden you got an incredibly different response from the nurse. I thought that was interesting. And I think it perfectly highlights sort of this lack of empathy and the lack of thinking in the system.
2: It's so true. And that was the trigger. Like that was the basically I forced empathy on her, right? Like put yeah. yourself in my shoes. What would you do knowing all that you know? Anyways, so going back to your question about <laughs> how that relates to digital transformation. And I I think the answer to that, Jared, is just, it's really around, we need to understand what our patient journeys are. So that's where the human-centered design piece comes in. So what I just gave you was an an example about care navigation. That's the consumer journey for navigating care. And so some may say that one strategy underneath like a consumer strategy might be to create frictionless journeys for your patients, right? And so that leads to loyalty and has all kinds of potential benefits around why is it that you want to make it very easy for patients to engage with you? I think I don't need to probably get into those reasons. I think we can... Fairly understand it. We want to make it as easy as possible for for patients to get into that journey. And so in my journey, like there could have been touches to the website. There were certainly call center experiences. I might have used the patient portal. There was a PCP office. There was a navigation component, like an actual navigation where I was you know, using a Google search term that was incorrect, et cetera. That sort of all happened along my journey. And so traditionally what we see in healthcare is that nobody is sort of looking across all those silos. Like I said, call center, patient portal, website, PCP office, et cetera, to solve a patient's issue or even looking at that journey. And so in many organizations... They might have data or search terms about what are people searching for? That What are people trying to find out when they're navigating their care? What are people uh, calling you for? Like, what are people calling you for? Like, listen in on a few calls to your call center to find out how are they navigating. The other piece is that some folks may have something as attractive as a CRM, for example. Mm-hmm. So they might be able to see an actual journey where a patient went to the portal first, then they called in, and then what did they do? And so my question would be, how do they get their needs met? Right? right, right. You have a, if somebody called in, like, where's the closing of the loop? What's that rest of that story? Mm-hmm. That whole long, boring story that I just shared with you is very interesting and filled with areas of opportunity. And so the question is, is, as an organization, you want to get very curious about that, and start to think about what are the problems that you want to solve that are important to the business. And What are the problems underneath those problems that are high priority for your users or high priority for your consumers? I like that.
3: As you've been working with Bay State and the team there, if I read your background correctly, this is sort of like your, your first opportunity in a formal health system. I know you've been in tangential spaces in health. What were like some of the most interesting things or insights that you were able to gather right away about how those teams are working, how the business is operating? And what did you do? Like, How did you jump in there and, and start teaching everyone about human centered design?
2: <laughs> It started with humility. This is hilarious. Okay. So when I when I first started working, I was insulted by my boss okay. because um, before I even worked with him, because he said, you don't have healthcare experience. And I said, <sighs> I do have healthcare experience because I work in, I was developing point of care analyzers for for diagnostics. And so sure. I felt like I had at least some level of healthcare understanding, selling into health systems, et cetera. They also worked at the National Institute of Health over in London for a while, working on their polyclinic model. Mm-hmm. And I was like totally, totally insulted that he said that. <laughs> yeah, um, and I was, you know, it, it just does. Right. Like, whatever. For some reason, it ruffled my feathers. So then I go into the emergency department. We were looking at patient flow analytics and sort of ways that we could improve the the patient journey inside the emergency department using like passive location awareness kind of things. And so my first step was meeting with the chief there and he was just giving me a tour of the emergency department. And it was my first time behind this curtain of what an emergency department looked like. And he was showing me the board of like all the status board that had all like flight control of everything that was going on and how he managed his business inside the emergency room. And it was funny because the board is placed so everybody can see it. And I noticed that everybody was doing a dance that I didn't understand. He kept mm-hmm. grabbing my arm in all different directions and like dancing me away from being in the, in the way. And I kept sort of like, eyes bugging out of my head, <laughs> sort of like looking mm-hmm. at all the workflows and just was like from a, from a designer, which is what I am perspective being sure. in there, I just realized there were so many problems and challenges that maybe needed to be solved, but that they all were dancing and it was working quite well. And I was sure. an intruder. And then I had this further hypothesis when I was there, sort of like an epiphany moment for me that tech is an intruder. Cause here I was mm-hmm. like Here with my little tech and my adorable Mac computer and my Apple Watch and whatever I was doing, just sort of like in the way of all of these people doing business. And I thought to myself, whatever I do, I just cannot make it worse. I cannot be in the way and that I needed to understand the dance before Mm -hmm. I tried to innovate.
3: I like that. Understand the dance before you try to innovate. I feel like, at least in my experience, especially since I'm on the the selling into side of a phone call from vendors and LinkedIn inquiries, what I've noticed is a lot of startups or heck, even MarTech type vendors do not actually understand our business. And sometimes their tools and solutions get get in the way. So keeping that in mind and, and going back to some of your experience working with startups, do you find that that's true? And how have you managed that? How have you worked with startups who... Know, position them better to be able to sell into an organization or or match their solution to actual value inside the organization?
2: So we first start with conversations. So I don't okay. ever pilot a solution without some level of a connection that needs to happen. And so usually that's a value proposition conversation. So I use human-centered design, if you will. I didn't know it was called human-centered design, by the way, when I was doing right. this for other Me jobs either. that I had.
3: Me neither. Me neither. Um, <laughs>
2: But that's what I was doing is sort of really understanding, you know, product market fit and sort of helping them understand what is the importance of the problem that you're trying to solve and the scope of all the problems that could be worth solving. What is like, how appealing is your solution and like Really, can they see themselves using it? What would it need to take to use it? You know, all of those sorts of questions around sort of that value proposition and is it a fit for us? And to me, that is the first place. They always kick and scream. They feel like they know that sort of stuff already and they want to dive right into scoping a pilot or what is it that we want to do together. But I find that they often have strong understandings or strong lessons from that work. What else happens though, which is also magic, is that you create a moment of tech inspiration on the clinical champion and the business owner side. And so when that magic happens, when the startup who, just like me, who thought I understood emergency departments gets a dose of humility, that there's magic that happens there because they're like, oh, there's a lot to learn here. Mm -hmm. And then the organization or whoever the representative from the organization has a spark of, awesome. wow, the art of the possible, mm-hmm. they all of a sudden want to work together in many mm-hmm. cases or in, in some cases. And yes. really, it's about facilitating that engagement so that they can collaborate, like best <laughs> collaborate. And how we do that is we frame it as a learning opportunity. Oof, so we basically say, what is it that you want to learn from this experience rather than The startup is thinking if this pilot results in a commercial sale, then we have won. This has been a worthwhile opportunity. And they have tons of pressure from their investors and stuff. I don't want to minimize that, but that's why we really focus on how do you break this down to the smallest component so that a lesson can be learned and then you can make a decision about whether you expand and further invest on both sides to go forward. So we frame them as learning engagements.
3: Love that. I love that. Very quickly, could you, oh, maybe I'll take a step back. So, you know, something that I always harp on in this podcast is the importance of culture of an organization around innovation. Talk to me a little bit about maybe some cultural barriers that you had to jump through doing this work with Bay State or, you know, even with your startups. How do you think about that as it relates to uh, human-centered design and actually doing the work?
2: That's a good question. So I think, I mean, obviously, culture is a big big piece of it. And on so many levels, I'm not even sure where to, where to start tackling that. But the, the first piece that comes to mind around human-centered design, especially in healthcare, is you have to create proof points. You have to create, why is this valuable for me to continue listening? <laughs> and so the real piece is about finding ways to demonstrate the benefits. And for human-centered design, it's really about how do you show So less than sort of what you actually did, because oftentimes the the, the example might be in 10% of our population did this, and they don't understand that in a digital world, 10% might be amazing, right? Rather than jumping right to the sort of ROI, highlighting the benefits of the problem analysis and the problem solving aspect of it, to me, has been the biggest piece of that. The other piece that I think has helped shift the culture, and this is going to sound (laughs) anti-innovation in some ways, but it's again around this governance structure. I think it's really important about lining up the projects that you work up on with the strategic imperatives and having somebody who understands what the technical feasibility is of anything that you're thinking about implementing and what that roadmap might look like. That's sort of the missing piece. And so really setting expectations around, this is what we're going to learn together, This is what it's going to inform in terms of investment or scale up or whatever, and that there's future decisions to be made. It's almost like in entrepreneurship, how there's like friends and family money and series A and series B and sort of things. You don't invest in everything all at once. And so helping folks understand the value of experimentation, learning lessons and making decisions from that point has been the biggest challenge to sort of change the culture in that way. But also, I think, really seeing positive traction in that direction.
1: Love it. Right. Yeah, from Jill. Uh, and for what it's worth, Jill, I I think it was probably a little tongue in cheek. I don't think it doesn't feel like feasibility constraints are anti-innovation, you know, to your point, you know, that that's actually the world that we have to live in to make this applicable at all. So no, I'm glad you brought that up. As we start to kind of uh, wind this down, Jill, I'm wondering if it's any of these pieces that you just spoke to, whether it's culture or operationally or the innovation itself or it's some other direction in terms of a call to action of maybe a low hanging fruit or a first step that leaders can can take in this direction to really help improve and, and make this connection with human centered design in, in the things they're doing
2: you know, to a hammer, everything is a nail. And I think Zane, I've either heard you say on this podcast or other another time, just, you know, it really, when, when is human-centered design the appropriate tool to use? Mm-hmm. And so there's, it's not always the appropriate tool to use. You might already know what the solution is, a direction you're already willing to place a bet. You have a vendor lined up. You're just ready to go. Let's go, go, go. You can yeah. use some components of human-centered design along that way. It's a very ex- extensive tool set. Like maybe you'll use that in your, experimentation, you might add some empathetic interviewing or, you know, might do something in the human centered design toolbook or playbook to sort of, to address it. But really the challenges that, that need to be solved or anytime motivation, feelings, behaviors are relevant in that, and that you're open to new ideas. You're open to see what will come, right? If you have a senior leader who says, I want you to deploy X, Y, and Z, right? then, and they already think they know what it is and they've identified what, where they want to go, then you're just going to be in the way of them getting that done. So to me, what I see is that getting more and more projects where I have the opportunity to use the methodology and then I use the methodology to actually go to the value huddles, go to the learning health systems rounds, going to steering committee meetings and things like that to actually present the how things were done and not just what was done has been a great way to gain traction. So if I'm thinking about that, I would say a critical step that leaders could take would be to find yourself an experienced designer Mm -hmm. and put them in on a project where you're open to see where it goes Mm -hmm. and and that you are willing to sort of invest in small pieces and and allow them to be basically a self-actualizing team, right? Or a self-maximizing team anyway. And that you're willing to sort of let go, see what happens. And I think what you'll see is that if you're educating the rest of the organization on the methodology, if you're sharing in the idea that when we learn things, we're learning as an organization, and that's good too, that you eventually will live into a future where somebody is going to ask every time you're on a project hey, who's the experienced designer on this project? To me, that's the future that I want to see is whenever there's a project that sort of fits that criteria that somebody is asking. I love that. Not who's the champion, not who's the sponsor, but who's the experienced designer or who okay. is the champion, who is the sponsor it. and who is the experienced designer. On I love that. I love that.
3: Now, I think everything, I realize we're getting to the end of our time here, but I, everything that you shared is so rich to me because I feel like You know, healthcare is undergoing a massive pivot now where we don't really even know, at least traditional healthcare, doesn't even really know where it should be. And the only way we're going to start to frame up what that looks like is to go deep into insights in collaboration with our patients, health plan members, you name it. And in my view, it's human-centered design, qualitative research, all this stuff is the methodology we're going to need to use to drive us there. I I, I
2: couldn't agree more. And I I just sort of add even more like kumbaya thought around (laughs) that is that... I mean, I honestly believe that you can apply this to structures and societies and relationships oh, and totally. things like that and yeah. really create a beautiful world that's based in empathy, that's designed for a beautiful world.
3: I <laughs> love it. I love it. Jill, thank you so much for being here. We so appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been awesome.
1: Yeah, Jill, where, where do listeners, uh, where can they connect with you uh, if they want to reach you? Uh, is, it, uh, is it on LinkedIn or, or Twitter? What, what's the best place for for people to find you?
2: LinkedIn is a great place to start and also TechSpringHealth.org and there's a hello at TechSpringHealth.org
1: general mailbox
2: that makes its way to me eventually.
1: Perfect.
2: LinkedIn is a great place.
1: Okay, good. Perfect. Jill, thanks so much for giving us a few minutes and giving us a ton to think about. Uh, We're so excited for this. And and, uh, again, this is a a ton to to give us some direction and and inspire us and all the things we're doing Uh, to you. I say uh, stay safe, be well and and all the best on everything you have going on.
2: Thank you so much. Cheers.
1: All right. Thanks to Jill and Zane. And thank you for listening. We hope you found some value in this conversation. And if you did, please, this is so important. Please subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Healthcare Wrap is a member of the Shift.Health content network. If you enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the other shows on the Shift.Health content network. We have 28 of them, folks. Go check them out at Shift.Health. They're all free and available on demand. Until next time, keep marketing forward. Thanks. And that's a wrap.